You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute Yahweh's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided, out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian, as Yahweh commanded Moses, and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All their cities in the places where they lived, and all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against Yahweh in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of Yahweh. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by laying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by laying with him keep alive for yourselves in camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person, and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men in the army who had gone to battle, This is the statute of the law that Yahweh has commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with the water for impurity. And whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. You must wash your clothes on the seventh day, and you shall be clean. And afterward, you may come into the camp. Yahweh said to Moses, Take the count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and of beast, you and Eleazar the priest, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts 
between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. And levy for Yahweh a tribute from the men of war who went out to battle, one out of five hundred, of the people and of the oxen and of the donkeys and of the flocks. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a contribution to Yahweh. And from the people of Israel's half, you shall take one drawn out of every fifty, of the people, of the oxen, of the donkeys, and of the flocks, of all the cattle, and give them to the Levites, who keep guard over the tabernacle of Yahweh. And Moses and Eleazar the priest did as Yahweh commanded Moses. Now the plunder remaining of the spoil that the army took was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all, women who had not known man by lying with him. And the half, the portion of those who had gone out in the army, numbered 337,500 sheep, and Yahweh's tribute of sheep was 675. The cattle were 36,000, of which Yahweh's tribute was 72. The donkeys were 30,500, of which Yahweh's tribute was 61. The persons were 16,000, of which Yahweh's tribute was 32 persons. And Moses gave the tribute, which was the contribution for Yahweh, to Eleazar the priest, as Yahweh commanded Moses. From the people of Israel's half, which Moses separated from that of the men who had served in the army, now the congregation's half was 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, and 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 persons. From the people of Israel's half, Moses took one of every fifty, both of persons and of beasts, and gave them to the Levites, who kept guard over the tabernacle of Yahweh, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Then the officers, who were over the thousands of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, came near to Moses and said to Moses, Your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command, and there is not a man missing from us. And we have brought Yahweh's offering, what each man found, articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and beads, to make atonement for ourselves before Yahweh. And Moses and Eleazar the priest received from them the gold, all crafted articles, and all the gold of the contribution that they presented to Yahweh from the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men in the army had each taken plunder for himself. And Moses and Eleazar the priest received the gold from the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before Yahweh. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 643 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. And that was a reading of Numbers 31. A really intense passage, a lot going on there. We have to talk about it. We have to, have to, have to talk about it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That includes this passage because we learn something of the character of God in every one of these passages. We learn something of the nature of man and something about the way that world works. And I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts and I don't want to avoid this. I don't want to shirk it. I don't want to skirt it. I don't want to 
move on quickly, I want to talk about what's in Numbers 31, because this is not going away anytime soon. In fact, there's more to come like this, so stay tuned. But for this passage, right, this passage, let's talk about vengeance on Midian. And we talked in recent episodes about Balaam at some length, his being called out by King Balak, asked to, offered a great deal of money to curse Israel because Israel was coming. They were on their way. Their reputation preceded them. And Balaam said again and again, I can't do it. I can't curse who God has blessed. I can't bless those who God has cursed. But I told you here a couple of episodes ago that it was going to turn out, we would be told later on, behind the scenes, Balaam had given advice to the Midianites to send their women into the camp of Israel and thereby to entrap and seduce and snare the men in particular of Israel by their womanly wiles to get them not just to be immoral in a sexual way with those women, but also as a means to create a positive association with worship of Baal, those women were sent to bring the wrath of God down on Israel. I gave you a sneak peek of this passage where Moses explains that to the returning army after they're having defeated Midian. They don't lose a man to their war against Midian, but they kill every man among the Midianites and they spare the women and the children. They bring the women and the children and these flocks, these herds, these animals, they bring the booty back and they're going to divide it up. And that's normal. That's typical. To the victor go the spoils. That's typical. That's not unusual. And it's not peculiar to Israel. This is very, very typical. This is very common. And yet God is going to, as he so often does, command a difference. Actually, what is different in his command here is that you're going to give a certain portion of this to Eleazar. You're going to give a certain portion of this to the Levites. You're going to divide it among yourselves. To the victor go the spoils. But as Moses points out, these women who have known a man, as in they are not virgins, these women are not innocent. You know, that's the thing is we have a inherited idea in the West of chivalry. That notion of chivalry should not be assumed as typical or standard or universal. That idea of chivalry is a Western concept that has arisen out of the Judeo-Christian mindset. And yes, the Romans had some virtuous examples like Scipio Africanus, who treated very kindly, very graciously with the women of vanquished enemies, vanquished foes, treating kindly with Carthaginian women, for instance, after the Punic War resulted in a victory for the forces under Scipio Africanus. B.H. Liddell Hart would say Scipio Africanus was the greatest military commander, the, the greatest general in history. We have some examples, some notable examples among the Romans of treating very kindly, actually being very gracious with the women of the vanquished foe, the vanquished enemy. But that was not typical in the ancient world. That's not been typical even on into the modern world. What's been more typical is 
Once the enemy is at your mercy and you have routed them, you've defeated them, you do whatever you want. You burn their houses and their high places. You burn their temples, perhaps even possibly, but you burn their palaces and their fancy houses. Maybe you keep those intact. If you're going to set up shop there, you're going to keep those beautiful, luxurious mansions for the spoils as part of the spoils for the leading officers and generals and commanders and kings and emperors for the conquering victorious army. But you're going to put any of the men to the sword that you want to. And that might be all of them. And for that matter, you're going to put any of the children that you want to, to the sword because you can, and they're not your kids. And especially if some of these boys might grow up wanting to avenge their fathers and whether they have the capacity to do so at scale, if they're going to be causing trouble, taking vengeance on behalf of their fathers, it was very typical throughout human history in all places to kill the males. And this is actually typical of the animal kingdom as well. You know, those who reject God, who either say, we don't believe God is is real. We don't believe he exists. We don't believe in God. They're atheists who say God doesn't even exist, but they look to the animal kingdom to make arguments as to what is moral. Like for instance, in the past two decades, we've seen this. I've encountered this personally, this argument that we should normalize homosexuality in American society because animals practice homosexuality. And I say, well, yeah, but the animals eat their young too in some cases. And that doesn't mean we should eat our young, right? Uh, the animals, uh, take a pride of lions, for instance, the animals will kill the children or not children, I suppose, per se, but the offspring, they will kill the offspring of the rival male that they have just dispatched. Observe the African lion and what happens if the male who presides over a pride of lions, usually one dominant male, and maybe a couple of dominant males, perhaps possibly, but let's say it's one old, grizzled, powerful, high testosterone male who is either killed or chased off. He's defeated in battle either way by a younger challenger. What is the first thing that the new top lion will do? The top male lion will kill all of the cubs of the previous ruling lion before beginning to sire his own offspring. This is very typical in the animal kingdom. And so if you're an atheist, if you reject God as even existing, much less being authoritative, but you would make arguments from the animal kingdom to justify certain habits or routines or arguments or progressive agendas, what is your objection here? The animals do this. What's your objection? What's your grounds? What's your standing to be able to say that this is wrong? I'll wait. I'll wait. You go ahead and formulate an argument and I'll listen. And I have asked that question before. Examples abound in my mind. Too many to go into specific ones, but let me just boil them down. Let me distill for you what I have often heard as a response to their next argument for why that would be immoral. They say, well, morality has to do with what broader society accepts as okay. And I say, well, then in that case, in that case, if society decides 
in the context of Numbers 31 that this is okay, then it was okay. And that's it, right? If that's your argument for how you know what is good and what is moral, well, then even on that basis, this passes. But let's suppose that there are people who say that they don't believe in God, but then they'll make the kind of a follow-on like, well, but but if God exists, right? So then they start talking like God really is commanding Moses and Eleazar and Israel to do this. They'll start talking like, okay, well, let's suppose he is real. He's not good, right? They'll accept that he exists, but then that's the chief argument against the existence of God. In all the debates I've had with new atheists over the years, and there have been many, that's the chief most is that God is not good. God must not exist because God is not good. Or at least the God of the Bible must not exist because the God of the Bible is said to be good, but there's all this evil in the world. And I say to that, if God says that something is good, then it's good. And if God even tolerates or endures or patiently allows to happen some evil, which he will then thereafter address, deal with, rectify, and punish, who are you to say whether God is good? You know, it's a curious thing. There's this double-mindedness to the question of the problem of evil when it comes to passages like this. Because in a modern context, what I'll hear is, God is not good because look at all these bad people who do these bad things. A good God wouldn't allow these bad people to live and to do these things. And it's like, well, you know, you're, you're getting there, right? You're not far off because God won't forever permit the wicked to prosper or to endure. They will at a certain point blow away like the chaff, but there's a common grace element here. It's not that he is apathetic. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he's unjust. It's not that he's not paying attention. It's not that he doesn't know. He is patient and he's gracious, but at a certain point, the bill comes due. And the bill comes due not just for men. If we're too chivalrous in our thinking, but we don't know where the whole idea of chivalry should have its basis, if it's going to be sound, if it's going to be valid, if we're too chivalrous in our thinking, but that chivalry is cut flower ethics, as far as our understanding is concerned, then we think only the men who are taking up arms deserve to die. But where did we get this idea that that is the litmus test? It's an important question. And it's not to be assumed that the answer is only the men who pick up arms are culpable or guilty or have been hostile. Now think about James Bond for a moment. Ian Fleming's famous series of novels about this British spy, this 007 character, James Bond. Bond, James Bond. A common theme throughout the James Bond stories is that you have a supervillain, and the supervillain typically has money, and he's got a network. And his network of dangerous men includes assassins and martial artists and snipers and poisoners and spies also and double agents, and plants, and there are ambushes that are set up, but there are also characters who sometimes are put in James Bond's path to try and win his confidence and ingratiate themselves. And how do they come into his confidences? Typically, 
they're women who are beautiful and attractive and they're attentive and essentially they are what you would call a honeypot. They are a lure because he is weak for beautiful women. Or an alternative might be a man is sent disguised as an ally who's going to help him to accomplish his his mission, who's going to help him to defeat the enemy network, to get to the bottom of some major crime that's either been committed or is in the process of being committed. And this person, this man in particular, disguises himself as an ally, as a confidant, working side by side, and then turns out to be a double agent. And what do we say, right? What do we say? We say, well, Bond can be perhaps forgiven for not realizing that everybody who's an imposter is an imposter from the jump. You got to trust somebody, right? But once it's known, right? Once it's known that this femme fatale is actually his enemy and she's there to kill him at a certain point or to set him up to be killed by the assassins of the supervillain on the other side. Well, then what, right? Our thinking changes, our arithmetic our, our arithmetic changes morally. And if she happens to meet her demise after it's known that she's a double agent or that she was really just trying to stop him from fulfilling his mission or defeating the bad guy, if she meets her demise, what do we say? We say, well, that was on her, right? That was on her own head. She did that to herself. She didn't have to be complicit. She didn't have to be an agent of this enemy. Well, so also here with Midian, the scale up version of this in God's word is these women were agents. They were honeypots. And the enemy here is not ultimately Midian. The enemy here is Baal. And so you have to understand that some people may dismiss all of the supernatural business in the Old Testament. Michael Heiser would dispel the idea that the ancient peoples who wrote these things down, who experienced these things, who lived through these things, who read these things in a contemporary fashion, the ancient peoples believed that these were real beings. They believed that Baal had power. He wasn't some made-up entity. He was a demon. In fact, even the word demon comes to us from the Greeks, and the demon, daemoni, is what they called their gods and goddesses, which is to say, if you put all of this in the context of Genesis 6, right before God sends the flood to destroy all life on earth, and you see that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took any of them that they would for wives and produce, uh, they produced offspring through them. If you put all of this with Midian and Israel in the context of that, or if you put everything with regards to Pharaoh's court magicians versus Moses and Aaron in the context of that, if you put everything in the New Testament, in the Gospels, with the casting out of demons by Jesus and the disciples, if you put all that into the context of Genesis 6, verse 4, what you find is very quickly, you have to believe that there are demons, there are Angels that are faithful and obedient, that send the messages and do the work that God sends them to do. God created these angels. We don't know everything about them, but we know that they exist, right? They're mentioned, they're brought up, they're named in some cases. 
We know that they exist, and we also happen to know that the devil, the accuser of the brethren, is a fallen being who was originally created for a good purpose, and then he rebelled, and God allowed him to rebel. Yes, that loops into having to unpack the problem of evil as well, but the unpack of the problem of evil is that God is the standard of good. Not that the standard of good pre-exists God. God is the standard of good. God declares what is good. If God permitted Lucifer to have the capacity to rebel and then to bring a third of the heavenly host into rebellion with him and a war against Michael and his angels and to be cast out of heaven, if God permitted these demons to have power, to have some authority, to go corrupting or attempting to corrupt or enticing or attempting to entice or subverting or sabotaging God's people, those made in God's image, those who were told to fill the earth and subdue it, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If that's the context here, then the enemy here is not Balak. And it's not these five kings of the Midianites. And it's not the men of Midian. And it's not the women of Midian. And it's not the children of Midian. The enemy here is Baal. And insofar as we come to this text with a preconceived notion of what is good, what we have to wrestle with, and this can be very uncomfortable, it can be very hard work, what we have to wrestle with is the prospect that a lot of our assumptions about what is good, what is fair, what is right, what is moral, are challenged by what God commands here. What God not just permits, because you, know, you would think these men returning from war with Midian, these 1,000 men from each tribe returning from battle, victorious, not having lost a man, with all the booty, with all the spoils, you would think they would be commended for having spared the women and the children if chivalry is God's ideal. Now, chivalry, we have to understand in a Christian Europe context, chivalry in that context is very different than what's going on here in Numbers 31. You don't have princes of rival territories who both alike are claiming to worship the same God, serve the same God, and then there's a dispute and we're not quite sure who's correct, but they're going to fight it out and send their armies against one another. And Whoever the Lord blesses with the victory must have been more correct, must have had the more correct claim. It's not like that. There is no defense at all for Midian. None. None whatsoever. They worship Baal. They don't worship Yahweh. What's curious, though, is, especially with having had Father's Day just this past Sunday, what's curious is one thing that's being eliminated with all of even the boys being killed, all of even the male children being killed among the Midianites, What's curious there is you have the elimination of the Y chromosome as far as Midian is concerned. There is no more Midianite Y chromosome. And what's also interesting, and this gets super weird, so hold on, hold on to something, brace yourself. If a very, very old, very common interpretation of Genesis 6-4 actually means that fallen angels we're taking human wives and getting offspring by them. In those days and also afterwards, there were giants in the land, and that's where we get the Goliaths, for instance, later on in the Old Testament. That's where, actually, earlier on, when the 12 spies bring the report back from the promised land, scoping out Canaan, 
when they say there are giants in the land, that's where the giants are actually coming from is cross-pollination and something of a Y chromosome from these fallen angels, from these demoni. And so what's actually being eliminated in all of these males among the Midianites being killed, all of the Y chromosomes, and if, if you have some cross-pollination, which wouldn't be shocking if you can entertain the possibility that that's what the text is telling us, that that's what it means. And Augustine writes about this, by the way. Augustine writes about this and says there are many in his day who hold the view that the sons of God in Genesis 6-4 were fallen angels. Many hold to that. He didn't favor it, and that's part of why traditionally since Augustine, because Augustine had such an outsized influence on Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, historical Protestant churches, thereafter even the non-denominational ones who take their cue from whatever's normative among historical Protestants, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox. If you take the view that Genesis 6-4 is describing fallen angels, then what you have is the prospect of these Midianite males actually being descended from demons, from fallen angels. And that might not mean that (laughs) uh, angels are so totally other as we assume. So totally other. Think about when the two angels come into Sodom to extract Lot and his family before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain there. Those two angels look like men, and more to the point, they look like men that the men of Sodom would like to sodomize. They look like men that the men of Sodom would like to rape. They look like men. In fact, every instance of angels, Old Testament and New Testament, they're always referred to with a male pronoun. They're always referred to as looking like men. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told we have entertained angels. Some of us have entertained angels unawares. So we've had angels walking in our midst, and we had no idea that they were even angels. Why? Because they look like people. Because they look like people. And how all that plays out, how all that works, I don't know. I don't fully understand. But what I do believe is that the people who are totally dismissive seem to be adopting a much more naturalistic view of God's word. And that's not good. That's not good. I would put the dismissiveness, the wholesale rejection of that prospect in the camp of those who look at Genesis 1 through 3 and they say, well, it couldn't possibly have been six literal days that God created the heavens and the earth. Six literal consecutive 24-hour periods, morning and evening on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Couldn't possibly mean what it says at face value. I say it means exactly that. It's exactly what it means. It means what it says. When sons of God, by the way, are referenced in the book of Job. In the beginning of the book of Job, when we're given the intro to, have you considered my servant Job? God speaking to the devil. The sons of God in that context are very, very clearly angels. Very clearly. It seems very reasonable to infer then that the sons of God, going after strange flesh, as we read in another place, the sons of God in Genesis 6, are fallen angels, and that they're not so different. I mean, they are different in terms of power and authority. They are different than men. They're not made in God's image like man, but they're also not quite as finite. And so what if, right? What if the context here is in part 
Midian has Y chromosomes from these fallen angels for whom there is no redemption. But here's where genetics maybe is important to keep in mind. If that is a plausible possibility, or even if we're just thinking in terms of how is it that a sinful nature is passed down through the male line? Why is it that Jesus is born to a virgin? And where is he getting his Y chromosome? He's not getting it from Joseph because Joseph had not known Mary. If we accept that the Y chromosome is somehow, some way related to the passing down of a sinful nature, and that's why we've all fallen in Adam, particularly us men, and if we understand that men have the primary responsibility to be the heads of their household, to be the heads over their wives and their children, and then by extension, heads and leaders in their communities. If we accept all of that, then you have to understand that the women have no Y chromosome. They have not inherited a Y chromosome. They've inherited two X chromosomes, one from their mother and the other one from their father's mother. And so there's something different, right? There's something different about the women. And in particular, it's significant that only the young women who have not known a man, only the virgin women are going to be kept alive. And we can say, oh, that's awful. Wow, that's so that's so barbaric and crude. And, oh, I just, VeggieTales didn't prepare me for any of this. And I say, well, yeah, that's right. That's right, it didn't. This will never be turned into a VeggieTales story, right? And this is why I don't like VeggieTales, because I think VeggieTales twists the whole counsel of God and implies strongly something untoward about the character of God, as though God would not be good if he commanded the killing of even the women who were not virgins, who had lain with men, either the Midianite men who were just killed, or with the men of Israel, probably both, let's be honest, but also the male children. We say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. And the appropriate response would be, from whence comes this notion of fairness, this assumption that you know better what's fair than God does? From whence comes this idea of fairness? If God told Israel to do this, it was entirely fair. And we can, in some sense, learn a lesson to be humble about what we know and what we don't know and distinguishing between the two from the fact that back in the earlier part of Numbers, dealing with Balaam, Balaam looked innocent. He looked, in fact, he looked pretty clean, pretty remarkable from what we were told, from what we knew. It's only once we get into Numbers 31 that you realize he's the one who set up this cunning plan to destroy Israel and whispered it to the Midianite women to get them to incur the wrath of God, send the women in and carouse with these Israelite men and get the Israelite men to worship Baal with you. We should expect that given what God commanded here through Moses to kill the women who had known men and to kill even the young boys, there is more that we don't know. And that is the essence of humility, to say, you know what? There's a lot I don't understand. There's a lot I don't know. I want to know more than I do. I want to get knowledge. I want to get understanding. But I don't fully understand this. I just trust that God knows. I trust that God commanded what was right. I trust that this was a righteous act for Israel to do. These men were not commended for having spared the women who had led to the wrath of God being poured out on 
if memory serves, 24,000 Israelites who died in the plague because of the whoring after Baal. You know, it's curious too, and lest we suppose that this is first and foremost a problem of these women having been sexually immoral or the men of Israel who died in the plague, it was first and foremost a problem of them being sexually immoral. Take care, right? There's another area, there's another category that we need to be careful coming into the text with preconceived notions of what's right and wrong or what's fair and decent and what isn't. Because in all probability, based on the historical context, based on the biblical context, in all probability, these young virgin women and young virgin girls who are going to be spared, and they are spared, and then they are distributed, the 16,000 who are distributed among the fighting men and among Israelites uh, more broadly, they're going to be servants. More to the point, they're going to be slaves. And insofar as concubinage later on and before this is not prohibited by God, it's not forbidden, it's not rebuked, it's not punished, these 16,000 are in all probability going to be concubines for the fighting men who went off and they fought against Midian. These are probably going to be concubines and they are probably going to bear children for these Israelite men and thereby expand even further, still further, the people of Israel and their number. That also, and maybe even more so, even more so than the killing and the death, that idea of slavery and concubinage being at very least permitted, but actually really commanded here makes us very uncomfortable. We don't like it. We reject that. We say that's evil, but we've made all kinds of blanket statements in our day and in the past few hundred years, really, since the Enlightenment kicked off, since the rise of secular humanism in the West, we make all these blanket assertions about liberty and about freedom and about sexual ethics and about war and about distribution and about equality or egalitarianism. We should be getting our standards from God's word and from God not coming to God's word and God with our standards, preformed, prefashioned, and then finding fault with God. You know, if you reject, as I said before, if you reject that God exists and your reference point is what the animals do, you got nothing because the animals do this and worse. This is actually very civilized compared with what the animals in these kinds of situations routinely do. If you're making an argument from what is commonly accepted to be good, you know what, in their context? I mean, the enemy doesn't like it, but surrounding nations and peoples would shrug and say, yep, that's what happens. That's war. That's what happens. If you're starting from the presumption that God does exist, but you're saying, yeah, but this is still wrong, right? This is still wrong. It shouldn't have happened. Take care. God is commanding this. God is the one who commands Moses to get vengeance, to get Yahweh's vengeance, more to the point, against Midian. So if this bothers you, there's no getting around the fact that God is the one who commands it. And so you need to wrestle with that. If that's uncomfortable, you know what? Grapple with it. Grapple with it 
and figure it out because it's very, very important that we not find fault with God and that we not deny the goodness and righteousness and holiness of God whose character has not changed. He is still the same in terms of his character as he was here in Numbers 31 thousands of years ago. He has not changed. He's not grown and matured and progressed. No, 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 no. We might, our understanding of him might progress and grow and change over time as we learn, as we mature. But also how we understand Numbers 31 here has huge implications for what we anticipate in the second coming of Christ. The second coming is going to see Jesus with a sword. Paul alludes to this even from the standpoint of participation in the last judgment by the saints. It won't just be Jesus. And I understand what people mean when they say, ah, but Jesus is Jesus. We're not Jesus. I understand what people mean when they say that. But Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more so matters pertaining to this life? If it's the fact, if it's the case that angels are going to be judged by the saints and that the world is going to be judged by the saints and we know that the final judgment is eternal separation for those who are not in Christ, those who are in the world and they're not of God, we had best meditate on what Numbers 31 means is coming. It's not just in the past, it's also coming. But that's enough for this episode about Numbers 31. More to come, as I said before, more to come on this as we continue on through the Old Testament. We will get into more passages like this. Embrace that these are going to challenge a lot of our paradigms as to what is fair, what is just, what is right in the making of war and the prosecuting of war, what God calls his people to, we will have to grapple with. We just will, especially if we are God's people. For a cautionary tale of what we don't want to sound like and look like when it comes to talking through what is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, I'm going to play cut one for you here from Annie Oakley over at Not The Bee, published June 17th, tweeted out and then embedded in the Not The Bee post by Breaking 911. Here is a 12-second clip of President Joe Biden talking about guns. Take a listen. Made it harder for people to buy stabilized braces. Put a pistol on a brace, it turns into a gun. Makes it more, you can have a higher caliber weapon, a higher caliber bullet coming out of that gun. Okay, so what he's talking about here is pistol braces on AR-15 style firearms. And that's what we should call them, firearms. A pistol brace on a AR-15 does not turn it into a gun. That's not correct. It doesn't. What he probably meant to say is that attaching a pistol brace, the ATF's most recent rule, which is part of a larger gun control push that the Biden administration is demanding, the most recent ATF rule is arbitrary and has turned potentially tens of millions of Americans into felons now if they didn't either remove the pistol brace, disassemble the firearm, register the firearm, or I should say apply for registration, or surrender their firearm to authorities, or destroy the firearm. But what he's actually saying is if you put a pistol 
on a brace, it turns in, into a gun, makes it more, you can, you can have a high, higher caliber weapon, higher caliber bullet coming out of that gun. And no, 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 no. The purpose of the pistol brace is to be able to strap a AR pistol to your arm and to be able to fire with stability. And actually more to the point, that's the object in view with any kind of a buttstock. And the whole business of regulating short-barreled rifles is an infringement on the Second Amendment. The idea that you have to register for a suppressor and you have to pay this ridiculous tax stamp and you've got to file paperwork and submit a ridiculous amount of identifying information about yourself and ask permission of the government, of the ATF, to get a suppressor, that's an infringement on the Second Amendment. Uh, It's upside down and inside out compared with what the Founding Fathers did and what they said about the right to keep and bear arms. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. These people don't believe that. They don't respect that. They don't like that. But here again, we need a more holistic understanding of how God relates to mankind and more specifically his people throughout Old Testament and New Testament to have a reasoned defense for being able to defend your home and your family and your person and people in your community from predators. Sometimes predators are individuals. Sometimes they're groups. Think here of drug cartels from Mexico. Think here of Islamic terrorists. Think here of various racial superiority groups. Think here of Antifa and BLM rioting in American streets in recent years, violently assaulting and accosting people based on their race or their perceived socioeconomic status or their perceived political affiliation. The right of the people to keep and bear arms is God-given. And this infringement has a lot in common with the petty tyrant kings of the United Kingdom who inspired a mass migration of, as I have been reading here recently, Scots-Irish in particular, that is to say, Scotsmen and their families who left, who fled Scotland because they were banned from owning ponies over a certain value or wearing swords and arms in public. And meanwhile, the flip side was they could be accused of anything, anything, and even just the allegation or the rumor that they had done some cattle rustling or some feuding with a rival clan was enough to get them hanged, tortured publicly and hanged or beheaded by a lawless tyrant king who held to the divine right of kings and who we have people in America today looking at Joe Biden and making the exact same kinds of arguments that the divine right of kings folk were making four centuries ago in Scotland, in Ireland, in Wales, in England. This is not a new problem. It's not a new challenge. It's not a new idea. It's not a new ambition. Petty tyrants believing that they are the law and then abusing their political rivals and their political enemies, this is not a new thing. And there's a lot that has been written about this. A lot of ink has been spilt. A lot of blood has been spilt, but a lot of ink has been spilt by sincere, devout, Christian pastors and theologians and laymen 
over the last five centuries plus, grappling with the idea of being able to defend yourself, your family, your community from predators. Sometimes predators are individuals who are unwell or they're insane or they're evil. Sometimes predators come in the form of organizations, organized crime, for instance. Sometimes predators come in the form of foreign armies. Sometimes predators come in the form of petty tyrants. And you have to understand that evil men exist and they are willing to do evil things to those who are at their mercy. You need to understand that war is timely sometimes. Peace is good to seek and pursue. We are told to, as much as depends on us, strive to live peaceably with all men. But we're also told in the New Testament, not instead of, but right alongside that principle, we're told that the governing authority is a minister of God given a task by God that many classify, I would classify as part of common grace. God sends his reins on the just and the unjust. Common grace is that the governing authority has ministering authority of a certain kind and a certain sphere of authority to reward those who do good. You could say also to serve and protect those who are doing what is good, who are exercising their God-given rights and their God-given responsibilities to serve and protect them and to punish those who do what is evil, those who are predatory, those who are evil and sinful and corrupt. You have to understand that a father, for instance, a husband, for instance, has a God-given right to protect his children and his wife. If they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, if they're behaving themselves and they're obeying God and some predator comes to kill and steal and destroy a husband and a father, we know this intuitively, but we also know this from God's word. A husband and a father has a right and a responsibility to defend his wife and his children. Now, if the whole lot is evil and corrupt, or if somebody is making arguments that a whole broad swath of their countrymen are all just deplorable, evil, corrupt, and they're starting uh, to try and take weapons away from those same people that they have been dehumanizing or vilifying for years and years, you need to, at a certain point, put two and two together and see this as a very grave threat. And husbands and fathers should rightly understand the whole counsel of God with regards to, as Ecclesiastes says, a time for peace, yes, and a time for war. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to love and there's a time to hate. Hate what is evil. Love what is good. As something of an object lesson, consider with me this next story I'll tell you about. From Insider, written by Natalie Musumetsi, as seen at msn.com, an unearthed bronze sword more than 3,000 years old is in such great condition, it almost still shines, preservation officials say. Archaeologists made a rare find when they recently unearthed a more than 3,000-year-old bronze sword. The blade is in such pristine condition that it almost still shines. According to preservation officials, the sword was discovered at a burial site in Germany that contained the remains of three people. Now, what was the story here for these three people? Discovered in the German town of Nordlingen, Bavaria. What was the story here? Why were these three people buried here? How did they come to their end? 
How did they die? Why was the sword buried with them? The simple answer is, I don't know. But that sword was not there for no reason any more than those three people were there for no reason. That sword was there because these people lived in a time very similar to what we're reading about in Numbers 31. They lived at a time very similar to our time, actually, where there were evil people or there were predators or there were rivals who wanted to come in and kill you and take your stuff and take your women, maybe kill your kids or else put them into slavery. And this sword was owned. It was fashioned by somebody and it was owned and it was born and it was wielded in all probability to prevent the loss of life or to prevent the loss of goods or to protect. Or the other possibility is this sword was fashioned to take because that's still the case. War can be an instrument of oppression and evil and villainy, or war can be an instrument of justice, just like the governing authority can use the sword. And Paul says he doesn't bear the sword for nothing. War can be the bearing of the sword against an evil enemy in another kingdom or among another nation. We can find that evil needs to be dealt with and dispensed with. And it's not correct to say, well, because all men have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, therefore, there is no difference. There's no way of knowing who is the good guy and who's the bad guy. They're all bad guys, right? They're all bad guys and everybody should just stop. Well, what do you do then when God, in the context of Numbers 31, commands his people to go and fight and to get his vengeance? What do you do when later on God uses even foreign nations and peoples that are not good peoples They're not God-fearing nations. God uses even pagan kings to dispense his justice on his own people because they have gone worshiping other gods. They've gone whoring after the gods of the nations. What do you do when God, it turns out, commands war in some cases? And then you find artifacts from 3,000 years ago showing that, yes, you know what? There was fighting and dying and killing and being killed 3,000 years ago. Hmm. What, what do you do with that? If we have a naive view of these things, we're going to say it's only ever man's sinful nature anytime a weapon is picked up. Therefore, to want to have a weapon, to want to keep and bear arms, is just an expression of you embracing your sinful nature. Au contraire, Mesami. Au contraire. Don't be naive. Don't be foolish. I mean, how would it have been if Balaam had said to the Midianites, you know what would be really great? You should send gun control act, uh, activists, send, send arms control activists and proponents and community organizers into the people of Israel's midst to get them to turn all of their swords into plowshares now. You know, that's coming. That day is coming. And so that you just tell them the day is now. And if they believe you and they will do that, well, then you won't have to worry about war with Israel. Yeah, but if the people of Israel had done that, then they would have been disobeying God because God was commanding them to take up arms. Couldn't take up arms if they didn't have arms. They couldn't prosecute a war against the people that God was driving out 
of Canaan if they didn't have the means of making war. I'm fascinated, personally fascinated by this picture that's embedded in the story from Insider, from Natalie Musumeci. I'm fascinated by this story because it looks new. I mean, it's just stunning, right? I'd love to see it taken out of the mud, cleaned up, dried, preserved really well, and then displayed. And I want to see a picture of this thing when it's all cleaned and polished and in a display case. I want to see that. I would love to see that. It's wild, right? It's wild. But it just goes to show too that 3,000 years ago, not that long ago. It's a long time for us because we have short lifespans now due to man's sin. The effects of sin on the genetic code and the judgment of God on sin. We have shorter lifespans and sometimes that's a mercy because those who get really, really good at doing the oppressive evil thing, if they don't just die of old age at a certain point, then what? Then what? But I bring this to your attention in relation to Numbers 31 because I ask you, if you were to unearth this sword, if it were you finding it in the place where Israel met Midian in battle, making war against them, if you were to find this sword in that place, and you could reasonably suppose this was an artifact of those battles or that war, would you look at this sword as being an evil thing? Or is this a neutral thing that can either be used to a good purpose or an evil purpose based on whether the person wielding it has a good purpose or an evil purpose? And we need to understand that gun control is really not first and foremost about controlling guns. Firearms restrictions are not first and foremost about controlling firearms. They're first and foremost about controlling the people who would have those firearms. When all the arguments are about how conservatives shouldn't have firearms, and then at the same time, it's nonstop, day in, day out, railing against conservatives as corrupt, evil, oppressive, ignorant, dangerous, abusive, put two and two together at a certain point and say what the gun control activists want, what the people trying to infringe on our Second Amendment rights are really trying to control is conservative America. They want to control conservative America, and you should take a cautionary lesson from Numbers 31. Because if this is what God can command his people to do, then what happens when there's no check, there's no limit, and it's just the imagination of a people that does not fear God? Clearly, clearly the left has no fear of God before their eyes. The left also wants you to lose your ability to use deadly force to protect yourself, your loved ones, your property, your rights. If what happens in Numbers 31 can happen with God commanding it, just think of how bad and ugly and awful the deeds of those who have no fear of God before their eyes can be. And I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm not trying to terrify you. I'm not trying to get you all stirred up and agitated to do something you shouldn't do or to be bitter, or to live in fear and anxiety. No, no. On the contrary, I want you to be confident. I want you to be secure in the knowledge that there is a long and robust tradition in church history among Christians for 2,000 years that the sword has a place. 
Paul writes about it in Romans 13. The sword has a place. We know what its purpose is supposed to be. We know that from Old Testament and New Testament. And like any gift from God, like any appropriate institution, it can be misused. And so we don't want to misuse, and we also don't want to abolish things just because they can be misused. We have to think rightly. And if we can think rightly about these things, then we don't have to be anxious or fearful because we're trusting that the Lord will bless and preserve those who are faithful and obey, or good stewards of what God has entrusted to them. Speaking of good stewardship and being faithful, let's talk about an article from First Things Magazine in their June 2023 issue, written by Gilbert Mylander, sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez, titled The Continuing Relevance of the Donatist Controversy. This is a medium-length article. It's not a short one. It's not the longest by any stretch, but it's a medium-length article. Speechify says it would take almost eight minutes to play it on audio. But I won't read this full thing. I'm not going to do that to you. I want to touch on it briefly, and I want to recommend it to you, and you can read it in full if you want to. But I want to bring your attention to it, and I want you to have a frame of reference. You can follow the link I'll put in the episode description for this podcast episode if you want to read the full thing. But I bring it up because Karl Barth is highlighted here and talked about Karl Barth you may or may not be familiar with as a prominent Swiss Reformed theologian from the early 20th century, born 1886. He passed away in 1968. Best known for his commentary, The Epistle to the Romans, his involvement in the Confessing Church, including his authorship, according to Wikipedia, except for a single phrase of the Barman Declaration, and especially his unfinished multi-volume Theological Summa, The Church Dogmatics, published between 1932 and 1967. Karl Barth, being an important figure in church history in the 20th century, at a pivotal time in the history of the West, and as the church was relating on all sides of the conflict in World War II and before that, and then post-World War II, in the Cold War, Karl Barth has a recognizable name if you read works on theology or church history. You'll recognize the name. Gilbert Mylander tells us something we may not know from just hearing him quoted in a work of theology or in a pastor's sermon or in an article about how the church is relating to this or that major question or ongoing situation. Karl Barth, as it turns out, according to First Things Magazine, June 2023 issue, Karl Barth had a research assistant he apparently fell very much in love with. She became his co-worker and at a certain point even moved in with Karl Barth's family and resided with them in something very closely approximating uh, second wife status. And I say that because Karl Barth 
was married when he began his ongoing relationship with this research assistant. He was married, he had children, and then was introduced to this gal. And it doesn't appear to me from my reading, maybe I missed it, but it doesn't appear to me as though this research assistant was married to somebody else. And there's not even an explicit reference to anything physical, but emotionally, there's no getting around his dependence on proximity to her, her being a part of his life. He wanted her, his research assistant that he developed very strong affections for, he wanted her to be side by side with him. He saw her as indispensable and someone he could not do without. And this, according to Gilbert Mylander, grieved his wife and children. And there were close friends who knew that this was the situation. There were people in the broader circle that knew that this was the arrangement. And as Mylander, writing about this, asks, once we know about this having been the situation for many years, in Karl Barth's life, in his family life, his relationship even just from an emotional standpoint with this research assistant. Once we know that this is part of his legacy and this was part of his personal life, his personal story, what do we do with his writings? What do we do with his theological works? What do we do with his church dogmatics? Well, interestingly, this article is not titled The Continuing Relevance of the Karl Barth controversy. This is titled The Continuing Relevance of the Donatist Controversy. And I love articles like this. This is why I love history is when you study history across a broad section, across a broad span of time, a diversity of cultures, a diversity of characters, a diversity of situations, and you start to get connections and parallels and the comparing contrast thing leads you to meaningful conclusions about how the world works or what you should expect or how to make wise decisions. When you do that, you start to be able to apply things like early church history debates to things like 20th century church debates and then also present day church debates. And this is actually very relevant when We're talking about, as the First Things article draws our attention, if we're talking about a lot of this business with normalizing homosexuality, affirming gay and lesbian couples, affirming transgenderism, many churches and denominations ripped apart over whether to ordain women and then whether to ordain homosexuals who say they're celibate but they have same-sex attraction, whether to ordain openly homosexual clergy, whether to host all-age drag shows in some so-called churches. There's a lot of debate in the church today, AD 2023, about should we use preferred pronouns if we are told to, if we're threatened with the loss of job, with the loss of business, or the loss of social standing, If we don't use preferred pronouns, should we use preferred pronouns? If it might cost you your job, if you might get criminally charged and sued 
and pilloried. You might have your life destroyed in a certain sense if you don't use somebody's preferred pronouns. What do you do, right? And as we wrestle with these kinds of questions, maybe the next question is going to be, once this has all been settled, once the dust clears, the next question is probably going to be, what do we do with those who turned tail and ran? What are we going to do with the compromisers? Once they realized they were just very afraid. They were very afraid and they said what they said and they did what they did out of fear. Fear of being canceled, fear of reprisals, fear of broken relationships, fear of a loss of income, fear of loneliness, fear of the loss of purpose and belonging in institutions that they closely identified with. What will we do with the woke folk who were deceived when they start to realize finally that they were deceived and then they want to be welcomed back in. What do we do in those cases? And what do we do in the meantime, actually, about people from church history and maybe even just from a century ago who have messy pasts? You know, this is important, actually, in light of Numbers 31, in light of all the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. What do you do with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs when you know that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. How does that change the way that you read a proverb written by a psalm written by Solomon? And whatever our measure of judgment, whatever our standard that we would apply to Karl Barth, if we apply it to King Solomon, how does that affect our reading of all scripture, breathed out by God and profitable? Do we actually profit from scripture written down by fallible, finite human agents if we close ourselves off to somebody even being used of God, a servant of the Lord, walking with the Lord when they're in a circumstance like Karl Barth's. You know, I was asked, like I am telling you, I was asked what my thoughts were after a fashion. I guess it was implied. He sent me the article. I'll put it that way. Let me be Honest, let me be clear. I don't want to say the wrong thing here. J.P. Chavez sent me this article, and I assumed that that meant he wanted to hear my thoughts on it. <laughs> he figured this would be of interest to me, and it is. It's very much of interest. It's very thought-provoking. But he wanted to know my thoughts on this piece about Karl Barth, particularly given some long-standing discussions that I have had with many and I've had on this podcast, a lot of discussion of certain books by authors who have capitulated to this woke business. I have named names of prominent leaders in the American evangelical church who I believe have been deceived at best. I believe they're in the place of Peter relative to the Judaizers at best. And some that would be too generous. That would involve the suspension of disbelief past the breaking point. Some of these characters are wolves in sheep's clothing. Some of these are false teachers. But some of these characters I trust are genuine. There's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of fruit that they are genuine followers of Christ. They are brothers and sisters in the Lord, even if they are badly mistaken, even if they're in error right now. And it doesn't change that they need to be corrected, but it might adjust how we correct them. And it might pose an interesting challenge 
in the years and decades to come. In fact, I hope that this is a challenge we have to wrestle with and grapple with, how to reintegrate fellowship with some of these men and women, these brothers and sisters in the Lord, when they realize what an evil, evil, corrupting, unwholesome, unjust, pernicious trap social justice activism was and critical race theory and gender theory. Once these brothers and sisters in the Lord who have been deceived and misled and intimidated and bullied and maybe, yes, bribed, flattered, cajoled, sweet-talked, taken captive by vain and human philosophy, once they realize the error of their ways, how do we reintegrate them? I want us to just get to that part. Let's go to that part because the sooner we get to it, the sooner we can have fellowship with those who are God's people and the sooner those brothers and sisters can be restored to a fullness of joy that right now, in the meantime, it's just not possible. It's not possible. Donatists, by the way, you'll find this as you read. If you're not already familiar, Donatists caused something of a controversy in early church history when the most severe persecution of the church under Roman emperors prior to Constantine led to many professing believers renouncing their faith in Christ, denying Christ because it was that or torture. It was that or death. It was that or losing all their possessions. It was that or who knew what. And once the persecution was lifted or the threat of persecution was lifted, many of these who had denied Christ and left the faith or as far as our finite human knowledge and understanding, as far as we could tell, as Christians, we would say they walked away. They abandoned their first love. Once they came back and they said, oh, we want to be restored. We want to receive communion and we want to rejoin the church. There were many who had not lost heart and had not been faithless who said, no, no, you're out. That's it. You had your chance. You're done. And so there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of debate about do we welcome them back or is that it, right? No second chances. You got one chance, you got one shot and you blew it. And actually what this reminds me of for something of a microcosm picture in scripture, it reminds me of Paul and Barnabas going their separate ways over whether to take John Mark on a missionary journey. And I keep saying that. I've been saying that for some time with regards to the woke folk, the woke Christians so-called, because some of them are probably Christians and they're deceived. They've been taken captive by vain and human philosophy. We're told not to allow ourselves to be taken captive by vain and human philosophy, but we wouldn't be told to not to if it weren't possible for a follower of Christ to for a time be deceived, taken captive by vain and human philosophy. I've said for quite some time, I think in the best case scenarios, that's what's going on is me and my brothers and sisters in Christ are disagreeing about whether to take John Mark. But even there, John Mark has to have, in some way, some form or fashion, have come to terms with, explained, repented of, apologized for having abandoned Paul and Barnabas on an earlier journey with them. Before you can get to 
whether to take him on the next trip, you have to come to terms with what happened on the last trip. And that might be unpleasant. Not least if some say, no, never again, never again will I trust you. Never again will I take you with me. No, you're not reliable. And God can use those who say, nope, we're done. And he can also use the ones who say, come on, let's try again. Because God does use both Paul and Barnabas. And God even uses their sharp disagreement, I trust, to refine both men and to accomplish his larger work. Because that's all God has to work with. As Gilbert Malander over at First Things points out, that's all God has to work with. When he looks at us and he enlists us, when he commissions us, when he commands us, when he equips us, when he leads us, when he guides us, he is always working with broken, finite, fallible creatures who need his grace, who need his correction and his discipline. But that's just it. If God is not waiting to employ us, to use us, to call us, to equip us until we are totally perfect, then how can we have a different standard with one another? Well, I'm glad you asked. It really depends on where the person is at relative what God has said. If they're unrepentant, then we have precedent. In 1 Corinthians, for instance, we have a precedent set that unrepentant sin, clear, demonstrable, you can't argue that this is legitimate, this is absolutely disobedience to God, you're not repenting of it, you're not confessing, you're not turning away from it, you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. The consequence for that, for the professing believer, is to be put out of fellowship with the hope that they will confess, they will repent, they will be restored. That's the idea. The idea is not just to hurt them or make an example of them, although it may be painful to be put out of fellowship, and it will serve as an example. It should serve as an example. But the the big idea is not to have them serve as an example of being punished if they break rank. The big idea is to have them serve as an example in the end of being restored, if that's the Lord's will, by God's grace. We'll see them restored after a period of separation. But all of this is actually a bit more complicated in the case of Karl Barth, because one thing we have to consider when it comes to church discipline, cases of church discipline, one thing we have to consider is, is it absolutely clear that this is a question of obedience or sin? Is it clear that this or that person is actually disobeying God? And I'm not talking, you can make a circuitous, tortured argument that because so-and-so told this person to do such and such, and because so-and-so is in a position of authority, therefore, anything that they say to do, you must do it or else you're sinning. And you know what? Sometimes it doesn't work like that. As we need to realize more of us in regards to civil government, so also with traditions of men in the church. In fact, this is the mainstay of what the Protestant Reformation was about. Does the Pope do church councils have the final authority on what is sin and what is righteousness or what is obedience or disobedience to God? Do the popes and do the church councils have the final authority? Protestants said 500 years ago, no, they don't 
have the final authority, but they do have authority. They don't have final authority. And if there is a dispute between the authority of a pope or a church council or a bishop or a cardinal or a priest and the word of God, the word of God is our final authority. It's our only absolute and infallible and inerrant authority. And so you have to test the commands. You have to test the orders and the edicts and the prescriptions and the forms. You have to test the polity against God's word. And even there, if it's a long, tortured argument that you say, well, if you look at this from just the right angle and you twist this and you turn that, and you stand on your head and you rub your belly in a counterclockwise fashion while patting your left foot, then they're wrong. And that goes both ways, right? When it comes to disobeying an order from a lower authority, a human authority, that also should go for when it's a person in a position of authority looking to punish somebody under their authority. And so the big question here to my way of thinking and looking at Karl Barth is very similar to the big question when I look at Numbers 31. How much of the squeamishness or uncomfortability or revulsion even that we feel and we respond with is coming with us prepackaged, wholly formed, preexistent, and we bring it to the situation, we bring it to the biblical text even, instead of letting the biblical text tell us what is good and what is right and what is true. And what does the Lord require of us? But to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. To know what it means to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God, we have to start with what he has actually said and what he hasn't said. And so my big question with regards to the Donatists, with regards to Karl Barth, with regards to the woke folk, with regards to Numbers 31, with regards to the political questions of our day, the big test has to be, what does God's word say? Now, I know of a situation, and I'm going to share this with you briefly, and I'll leave the names out of the equation because I don't want to embarrass anyone. I don't want to implicate anyone. But I'm going to tell you I have someone in my broader circle who has recently, as of the past several months, recently been church disciplined out of a church over the question of whether the patriarchs in the Old Testament, whether the kings in the Old Testament were sinning to have had multiple wives. And this could seem like a very ridiculous thing to be church disciplined about, but actually that's because it's not what he was actually church disciplined out. He was put out of fellowship over. What he was actually put out of fellowship over was having contradicted the elders of the church. One of them had said, yes, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, if he had multiple wives, there's some debate about that, but certainly David, Solomon, these men were sinning to have multiple wives. Shame on them. These men were sinning to have multiple wives. And this person that I know objected and said, well, wait a second. No, no, that's not correct. There's nowhere in scripture where God says what you're saying. So if God didn't say what you're saying, you don't get to declare what is and isn't a sin. Maybe to you, it would be a sin if you did what they did 
But that's not the same thing as it being okay for you to put words in God's mouth. He didn't prohibit or forbid or condemn what you are. Take care. And so then the conversation proceeded to the next thing, which was, well, of course it's a sin because those men were already married to a woman when they took additional wives. And so then, clearly, these men were committing adultery to even look at another woman and to say, I I want to take her as a wife too. These men were clearly committing adultery. And so then this person I know said, actually, no, that's not correct either. You're wrong there too. We have an egalitarian notion of what adultery is. And that notion is not biblical. It doesn't come from the Bible. Actually, it's a competing claim, a contradictory claim on defining this institution of marriage and what breaks it and what violates the institution of marriage. Egalitarianism is at odds with a biblical view of marriage holistically. Not just on this, but yes, actually on this too. Because egalitarian thinking about marriage would say, man, woman, husband, wife, it's all the same. No, actually, biblically, it's not. The biblical definition of adultery is that the woman is already married and she takes another man. That's adultery. And actually, here's a shocker for us. That's adultery even if her husband, her first husband, divorces her and she takes another husband. That's adultery. According to Jesus in the New Testament, he is so clear about this, and we don't want to hear it, just like we don't want to hear so much of what would put us at odds with our own ambitions and what the broader society affirms and condemns. But you can't get around it. You can't. You can say you don't like it. You say you don't want that. You can say you think you have a better idea, although you're wrong. But there's no getting around it. Jesus says if a husband divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality or adultery, more to the point, he has actually caused her to commit adultery. Why? Because she's going to get remarried. When she gets remarried, she takes another husband. She is right then committing adultery. She's not allowed to have multiple husbands. He, on the other hand, is permitted according to the law of God. Now, if man wants to make laws and establish traditions and say, well, that used to be the way of it. Now we're saying it's this other thing. And if man wants to prohibit and permit, that's a slippery slope. Now you can make the claim. You can say, well, we're supposed to respect and submit ourselves to every governing authority. We're supposed to be subject to every governing authority. But there has to be a limit on that. And if there isn't, then what holds us back from affirming the pride celebration at the White House? What holds us back from agreeing with President Biden when he says there is no such thing as other people's children? These are all our children and we'll take yours away if you try to stop them from transitioning to the other gender. What holds us back if there isn't some limit, there isn't some check on the authority that a civil authority or an ecclesial authority that is an authority in the church, or if there isn't some check on the authority of the paterfamilias, that is the father in the home, if there isn't some check, if there aren't boundaries, what holds us back from going along with every kind of sin and folly? And more to the point, what holds us back 
from doing what many Germans did during World War II, where their defense, their plea at Nuremberg was, I was just following orders. Do we accept that? Do we agree that that is a legitimate defense? Are we acting like we think that is a legitimate defense? I bring this up in relation to Karl Barth and the Donatists and the woke folk because it's all of a piece. It all really, at the end of the day, comes down to how do we know what justice is? How do we know what is fair? How do we know what is good and what is true if we think our judgments can supersede God's judgments? Now, you could say, well, what if we don't all agree? What then? And that's where there is this idea, you can't miss it, in the New Testament of Christian liberty. Now, it's not absolute. It's not ultimate. There are limits. You know, the man who's put out a fellowship in Corinth, for instance, on the order of Paul in 1 Corinthians, that man does not have absolute Christian liberty. At a certain point, his Christian liberty comes right up against the clear command of God. There's no mistaking it. Put him out until he repents. Then welcome him back in 2 Corinthians. Peter, rebuke him publicly, strongly, to his face, in front of everybody, because he's sinning publicly, just like I read for you recently an open letter from Rosaria Butterfield, repenting of having used preferred pronouns. She repents of it. And why does she repent publicly? Because she says, my sin was public, and so my repentance needs to also be public. And she's right. She's absolutely, she's absolutely right. The repentance needs to be as public as the sin was. The rebuke needs to be as public as the sin was and as the repentance needs to be. But Karl Barth, let's talk about Karl Barth here for just a moment. Karl Barth, if unofficially, off the books, off the record, covertly, if at least emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, he was relating to this research assistant as if she was a second wife, even though she wasn't, Karl Barth was not qualified to be a pastor, period. He disqualified himself to be an overseer, period. And we know that. We know that because Paul writes in his letter to Timothy and in his letter to Titus, qualifications for overseers, see also elders, see also pastors. Call it what you will. It's the same thing. The function is the same, so you can call it whatever you want. It is God's purview who occupies that role, that space. Ultimately, that is God's decision because this is God's people. So take care. Karl Barth, whatever brilliance he brought to commentary, however sharp his theology, he was not qualified to be an overseer, biblically. That said... If we are coming to the biblical text and being transformed by it, instead of bringing the biblical text to our preconceived notions and then demanding that the biblical text be transformed by our biases, we have to recognize, again, as with so many things, this wouldn't need to be said. If there weren't the potential for the other thing, I believe very strongly that Paul is saying to Timothy and Titus, that the polygamists in the early church can't be overseers, which is to say there were polygamists in the early church. And we know that anecdotally from 
early church fathers as well. There were polygamists in the early church. And this was talked about and it was discussed. It was debated. It was not from the beginning of the church age that polygamy was regarded as sin. It was only a few centuries in as this concern, very much along the lines of St. Ambrose, as he once famously said, St. Ambrose, the one who baptized St. Augustine, St. Ambrose said, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. The Romans regarded adultery along the lines that we do now. We've inherited their traditional view of adultery. They regarded divorce actually also very similarly to how we view divorce. So you could divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry. And it was fine, right? Just you can only be married to one person at a time. That's it. That's all. That's all they demanded, which is not a biblical ethic of marriage, by the way. It's not. No fault divorce and remarriage for the woman is adultery. And for the man, no fault divorce of his wife, Jesus says, causes her to commit adultery, which is to say the husband is complicit, which is to say the husband is guilty, which is to say, what's the difference really between her committing adultery and then him? Isn't it actually him who's in some sense committing adultery there? If he divorces his wife, except in the case of infidelity. The Romans were not okay with polygamy. They weren't good with that. It offended their judgment of the proper arrangement of the home and the family and the community and the state, the Republic first, and then the empire. And as such, a few centuries into church history, it was decided by leaders in the church in a Roman sphere, we need to regard polygamy as sin. Now, let's go back to the Karl Barth thing. And let's recognize that Karl Barth was not qualified to be an overseer according to what Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus, but he would have been okay, at least along these lines, to be a member in good standing of the early church. In fact, there were plenty of men who were polygamists in the early church, which is to say he wouldn't necessarily have been qualified to be an officer of the church, an overseer or a deacon, but he could have written and said very insightful things about scripture. And whatever judgment we apply to Karl Barth, we need to be very careful about because consistency will see us applying that same standard of judgment to the Old Testament servants of God. We will not be holier than God. We will not have a better, higher, purer, more noble, more righteous standard than God did. And you should also note, you should note that the social stigma, the expectation in all of these cases is half of our discomfort. If we really are honest, when we come to Numbers 31, how much of our recoiling and revulsion at Numbers 31, and what Israel is described as doing to the Midianites, how much of our revulsion is because the people around us would never accept our accepting this as okay. Something to think about. This is something we have to wrestle with if we would have the mind of God, if we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it's going to be a feature. It's going to crop up again and again and again and again as we study the word And let me just say briefly, pertaining the person I know who was put out of fellowship because 
that contradicted the elders of their church who were mistaken and who even actually came back after the fact. They came back after the fact and they said, you know what? We actually were wrong about this. He's more correct than we are about what adultery is biblically defined as, which is to say it's not equal opportunity. It's not egalitarian like we were assuming, which boy howdy, that puts egg on their face because they didn't know what they were so confidently proclaiming, which is to say how much of the rest of the time are they just bluffing? They should be more humble. They should be more humble. Study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, which is to say, if you don't, then you will be. If you don't study to show yourself an approved workman, you will be ashamed. You will be embarrassed. You will have egg on your face sometimes. And when you get egg on your face, you know what you should do? You should own it. Own it. Admit that you were wrong. And thank the person. If you are wise, if you love wisdom, Proverbs says you thank the one who corrects you. A fool hates the one who corrects them, even if the one who corrects them is correct to correct them. Even if the correction is necessary and important and meaningful, the fool hates correction. If you correct a fool, he will hate you for it. Correct a wise man, he will love you for it. He will thank you for it. These elders should not have church disciplined the man in question out for having contradicted them and corrected them more to the point having embarrassed them because actually they embarrassed themselves. And on issue after issue, if this is a pattern, we set ourselves up for needing another Protestant Reformation because this is what the Protestant Reformation really boiled down to. At the end of the day, it wasn't about indulgences first and foremost. It was about who has the final authority. Does God, and do we know what God's authority has announced from reading his word, or does this man here with the title, with special robes and a special throne, does this man here have the final authority? Does God's word really have the final authority in our hearts and in our minds? I dare say that is what's being tested in these kinds of situations. First and foremost, and if we're afraid of the mob, if we're afraid of the many, if we're afraid of a very bullying, threatening person who is insecure, who has a fragile ego, how much are we actually contributing to hypocrisy, play acting, partiality? You know, coming back to this Wikipedia article about Karl Barth for a moment, I read in the second paragraph. Like many Protestant theologians of his generation, Barth was educated in a liberal theology influenced by Adolf von Harnack, Friedrich Schleiermacher, and others. His pastoral career began in the rural Swiss town of Seifenwil, where he was known as the Red Pastor from Seifenwil. There he became increasingly disillusioned with the liberal Christianity in which he had been trained. This led him to write the first edition of his The Epistle to the Romans, a.k.a. Romans 1, published in 1919, in which he resolved to read the New Testament differently. Barth began to gain substantial worldwide acclaim with the publication in 1921 of the second edition of his commentary, The Epistle to the Romans, in which he openly broke from liberal theology. He influenced many significant theologians such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who supported the Confessing Church, and Jürgen Moltmann, Helmut Goldwitzer, James H. Cohn, Wolfhard Pennenberg, Rudolf Bultmann, Thomas F. Torrance, Hans Kung, and also Reinhold Niebuhr, Jacques Ellul, and novelists such as Flannery O'Connor, 
John Updike, and Miklos Sintkuthi, among many other areas. Barth has also had a profound influence on modern Christian ethics, influencing the work of ethicists such as Stanley Halrowas, John Howard Yoder, Jacques Alul, and Oliver O'Donovan. Now, let's take a step back. Moltmann is bad news, by the way. Watch out. Anything to do with Jürgen Moltmann basically infused his theology with communism. So he is not somebody I would ever, 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 ever recommend. But insofar as Dietrich Bonhoeffer was tremendously courageous in standing up to what the Nazi party wanted to do with the German church, the idea that Karl Barth would be associated with this rejection of liberal Christianity has to be understood as of a piece with the rejection of the idea that as Christians, we are at liberty to read the Bible like we would the Sunday morning newspaper. Now, there's this famous obituary that was written about J. Gresham Macon by H.L. Mencken, in which the very publicly, very aggressively, very staunchly atheistic Mencken praised Macon. Mencken and Macon disagreed, could not have disagreed more profoundly about God's existence, the truth of the Bible. But you know what Mencken praised in J. Gresham Macon? It was that he didn't, like so many of the liberal theologians, the liberal pastors, the liberal Christian commentators, Mencken recognized, Mencken, J. Gresham Mencken, believed that it was either all true or none of it was true. Either the whole of the Bible was totally true or none of it was true. And Mencken respected that. He admired that, even though he came to the opposite conclusion. You know, Mencken believed it was all true. Mencken believed that none of it was true. But so also here with Karl Barth. If Karl Barth was really wrestling with some of the implications here and he was breaking with this idea of liberal Christianity that actually has a lot to do with the increased secularization. Let's secularize the Bible, essentially, is what liberalism and Christianity is about, or Christianity and liberalism is about. Let's secularize the Bible, the liberal theologians say, and the true Christian has to say, you are the new heretics to the liberal theologians. The faithful Christian has to say, you are the new Gnostics. You are the new Judaizers. This is a false gospel you guys are preaching. No. And what's curious too is Macon didn't like fundamentalists. He was accused of being a fundamentalist. He wasn't actually a fundamentalist because what he objected to with the fundamentalists is that they were very much of a piece with the liberal theologians. Let's boil down all of what God has said, what he's promised, what he's said of himself, what he's commanded. Let's boil it all down to what we find most important, what we care most about. And then either we'll explain away or we'll just ignore everything else. So we get to pick and choose. And then we get to break out into denominations based on what we prefer from the word. Like this is one big buffet. We pick and choose what we will recognize, what we will abide by, what we will meditate on, what we will strive to understand and affirm and agree with. J. Gresham Macon said, no, no, you can't do that. 
Now, what's curious is, if you think about it, with Karl Barth, he very publicly broke with liberal theology and wrote influentially about liberal theology. Some would say, oh, well, his arrangement with the research assistant, uh, maybe he didn't really quite break with liberal theology. Uh, But wait a second, though. Wait a second. This is where it gets dicey. This is where it gets difficult. Because on the one hand, it's like with Numbers 31. You have people who say, well, the problem of evil is that God is not putting a stop to evil. But you know what? If and when God puts a stop to evil in somebody's life in a way that you would recognize, you object that that seems rather harsh. So God allows certain things to persist and to continue. And no, they're not the ideal. But then in some sense, God is responding to the evil in the world with an appropriate remedy that is part of the whole being out of calibration. I mean, you can say, well, God's original design and intent was not for 11,000, 12,000 men with swords to go killing all the men in Midian, killing the kings of Midian. You know, that's not God's ideal. It's not God's ideal that even the male children, are you serious? Even the women who aren't virgins are going to be put to the sword. That's not God's ideal. God commanded it. He didn't just permit it. He didn't just quietly allow for it. He didn't just quietly allow for these 16,000 virgin girls, virgin females, to become the possession of the Israelite men. God orchestrated this. He ordained it actually, just as much and no less than he created them male and female from the beginning. No less, only all the more should we be sober when we come to the whole counsel of God. And we, in our day, are looking back over centuries of our own history here in America, the whole history of Western civilization, the whole history of the church, the whole history of the world, We're looking back and we're passing judgment on previous generations of our forefathers and our ancestors and those who went before us and those who built up civilization. And we dare, we have the temerity and the gall to sit in judgment over all of them as if we're the pure ones when tens of millions of unborn babies have been aborted. And so many of us wrestle with, well, you know, how much should we really legislate these things? You know, it's not really the Christian's job to legislate morality. It is the Christian's job to call for repentance of sin and to warn of coming judgment on unbelievers and the unrepentant and the ungodly and the wicked. But how much time is wasted? How much time is wasted on our internally, in our hearts, in our minds, recoiling at what God has done and what he has said in his word in millennia past? How much lost motion Lost momentum is there when we sit in judgment over God, even, in the worst cases. Because ultimately, this is like the people of Israel grumbling against Moses and Aaron and God taking it personally because at root, they are actually grumbling against God. What about the principle there as applied to the patriarchs and the kings in the Old Testament who God commissioned to do work that he had for them to do? including but not limited to writing books of scripture, holy scripture. For us to grumble against those men when we don't have a license from God risks, I dare say, 
us grumbling against God himself. And so I would say, with regards to the legacy of Karl Barth, if perhaps we say, well, that was unusual, highly, highly unusual and irregular, and if he was referred to as a pastor, if he was a pastor, but functionally, equivalently, he had something like a second wife, he disqualified himself, that's clear from the word. But he didn't disqualify himself, as I read it, as I understand it, from being somebody we could read and we could benefit from the theology of otherwise we are in a pickle. We are in a major, major bad way when we come to Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, etc. Now, while we're on this topic of how I believe Karl Barth should have resigned from the pastorate, and also probably should have just come right out and said what it seems he suspected and believed privately. Let's turn our attention to an article over at gotquestions.org because this is an important enough question. I'm not the only one asking it. You've probably encountered other people. You've probably asked it or wondered it when you read the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament. If you're not reading the Old Testament, well, then maybe this is one of the barriers to entry and maybe... We need to address this so that you will see the Old Testament in a new light. But the question is asked, why did God allow polygamy and bigamy in the Bible? And here's what gotquestions.org has to say. The question of polygamy is interesting in that most people today view polygamy as immoral, while the Bible nowhere, and this is gotquestions.org, by the way, nowhere explicitly condemns it. The first instance of polygamy and bigamy in the Bible is that of Lamech in Genesis 4.19. Lamech married two women. Several prominent men in the Old Testament were polygamists. Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, and others had multiple wives, all of them. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, essentially wives of a lower status is what a concubine is. But it's let's be honest, let's be real. While we're at it, concubines are slave wives, essentially. They could be bought. They could be sold, they could be traded, they could be gifted, they could be captured in battle. Concubines were slave wives. Don't sidestep it. According to 1 Kings 11.3, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What are we to make of these instances of polygamy in the Old Testament? There are three questions that need to be answered. One, why did God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? Two, how does God view polygamy today? Three, why did it change? One, here's the answer to the question, why? And I quote, the Bible does not specifically say why God allowed polygamy. And we must remember that allowance is not the same as approval. Yes. Okay. Yes. As we speculate about God's permissive silence, there is at least one key factor to consider. In patriarchal societies, it was nearly impossible for an unmarried woman to provide for herself. Women were often uneducated and untrained. Women relied on their fathers, brothers, and husbands for provision and protection. Unmarried women were often subjugated to prostitution and slavery. Now, let's just stop right there. Let's stop. Let's back up for a second. It is fully within God's purview to be able to say, as he does in a chapter of Numbers that we just recently read, when the daughters of a certain man 
Zelophehad come to Moses and they say, hey, our father died. Can we inherit? God is fully capable of calling for repentance of patriarchy if it's actually a sin for there to be a patriarchal society. God doesn't have to adopt this liberal theology progressive framework in the Old Testament just to get ready for us thinking that we know so much. And he didn't, by the way. We're still looking at this from a liberal theology lens, from a progressive lens. Now, let me just take a break from the gotquestions.org piece here. Do we get something of an idea of God's ideal, perhaps in the qualifications for overseers and deacons that Paul lays out? When they lead with, must be the husband of one wife, able to manage his household well. Yes, yes, we do. Also, though, this could be a much more practical, pragmatic qualification than we are expecting. A man with multiple wives, lots of children, a large household, lots of interests, lots of dependence, perhaps does not have the time and the attention to put into being an overseer in the church. It's a possibility. That's something we have to consider. But also, too, we have to, have to, have to key in on the fact that gotquestions.org tells us what is at root, most important detail here, that this is not explicitly commanded or prohibited by God. Therefore, we are going too far to say such and such is a sin. It's as simple as that. Now, here's the second question. How does God view polygamy today? Gotquestions.org answers. Even while recording cases of polygamy, the Bible presents monogamy as the plan that conforms most closely to God's ideal for marriage. The Bible says that God's original intention was for one man to be married to only one woman. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, not wives. Which, I, you know, I, I think there's a little bit too much that's expected of this passage. I'll be honest. You're trying to get that passage to work too hard, to use it as a primary argument for monogamy, the insistence on the demand of monogamy as opposed to polygamy. You're asking the passage to do too much heavy lifting that is not actually in the text. There's an eisegetical quality. It's not a strong argument any more than, remember, when I read for you Proverbs 1.8 in our last episode. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. You look at that, you look at that and you say, well, it says my son. So clearly God's ideal is that we would only have one son. Clearly, that's obviously what that means. Yeah. Yeah, the ideal is not to have lots of sons, Garrett. Yeah, I don't know what you're doing with having an eighth son on the way come November. I, that's not the ideal, right? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're asking this passage to do 
work that it is not designed to do. It was not put there for you to try and make the argument that you're trying to make. You're totally missing the point. And I would say the same goes for employing for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Sorry, guys. Now, this does rule out same-sex marriage. But even there, it's not the strongest argument against same-sex marriage. The strongest argument against same-sex marriage is all those times where God said, whoever does this is committing an abomination and they should be stoned to death. Or whoever does this is not inheriting the kingdom of heaven. That's the strongest argument. We have no equivalent argument or claim or command or prohibition with regards to polygamy. And that's significant. That is key, and there's no getting around it. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. God says that the kings were not to multiply wives or horses or gold. While this cannot be interpreted as a command that kings must be monogamous, thank you, it does indicate that having multiple wives causes problems. Well, yeah, but you know what? Having a wife, having one wife, having children, you could say causes problems. That line of reasoning is also not strong here. They also point out that such problems can be clearly seen in the life of Solomon, 1 Kings 11, 3-4. But as I've pointed out, what is the context there? These are women from foreign nations who bring their foreign gods with them. It's not first and foremost an issue that they are multiple women. It's the issue that they are very much like the Midianite women who were sent to disrupt and sabotage Israel in Numbers 22 through 25. That's the primary issue there. Uh, as Got Questions points out in the next paragraph in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3.2 and 12 and Titus 1.6, they list being the husband of one wife as a qualification for spiritual leadership in the church. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait a second. Not a qualification for spiritual leadership in the church. You're being too general. You're being too vague. That's not what the text says. Overseer is what the text says. That's the word that's used, or if you will, elder, or if you will, pastor, as we call somebody. We don't call people spiritual leaders. The office is an office. The office is a title. The title is official. This is not just leadership writ large. This is not leadership writ large, as in the qualification is for you to have any standing whatsoever, any influence, any clout, any credibility in the church. No, no, that's not what First Timothy and Titus say. And so how would it be? And here's my point, right? Here's my point in going through all this at so much length, ad nauseum. When I see the claim being made that, well, we have to, we have to take this stance that we are because the integrity of our respect and our reverence for the word of God is at stake. But then the thing that is done supposedly in defense of God's word and the integrity of God's word and the testimony of God's people, the thing that is done actually is playing fast and loose, fast and loose with the biblical text and treating very roughly, even 
respectable men, honored men, trustworthy men, reputable men, just because they've said, wow, that's just not correct. That's not correct. It's hypocrisy. That's what's the big problem here. It's not that there's some disagreement about what to do with this because there's not a leg to stand on in forbidding this from Scripture. There just isn't. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, how many of the people who are saying, well, Scripture clearly rules this out, also say you shouldn't be trying to influence the culture and politics and the laws of the nation with your Christian worldview and with your Christian faith and with the Bible. So even there, it's double-mindedness. It's being two-faced. But if what we said was, well, hey, wait a second, let's not prohibit what God has permitted. Let's not permit what God has prohibited. What if we came to the question of how our laws are being written with a view to what is likely to be a problem in the coming years and decades. And let me explain what I mean by this. We'll skip on over to the Daily Wire, a piece published June 16th titled, Judeo-Christian values have been replaced in the West by new cultish religion, Ben Shapiro says. Shapiro made the comments while discussing the recent Jeopardy episode in which none of the contestants were able to complete a portion of the Lord's Prayer. He said this illustrated how little Americans today knew of the religious tradition that had held American society together. Quote, but you know what this says? It really says that the level of biblical Judeo-Christian knowledge in this country has absolutely plummeted through the floor. And you want to know why America is collapsing socially? That would be the reason. The reason is there used to be a natural backdrop in the United States of particularly Christian values that everybody sort of understood. Shapiro continued, now I'm a Jew, okay? We don't do the Lord's Prayer. That's not a thing for us, okay? But I also have watched movies and TV shows and I live in America, so I know that the answer is hallowed, end quote. Now I draw your attention to this bit of commentary from Ben Shapiro because he's absolutely right. But this woke business is the continuation of liberal theology, which is precisely why so many have been deceived because they were already on the hook. They were already on the track for liberal theology, for progressive thinking, thanks to the public schools, thanks to our pop culture influences, thanks to our corporate news media. They were already on the liberal theology bandwagon. And then here comes the woke stuff, and it's increasingly obvious that this is just Marxism, thinly veiled communism. And now we're like, whoa, wait, whoa, what's going on? When did this happen? Where did this come from? You know where it came from? It came from about a century ago when the liberal theologians were taking over American colleges and universities and seminaries and driving out the likes of Jake Rasham Macon. This comes from actually immediately after and before the American Civil War. This comes from the Protestant Reformation and the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation and the questions of authority and who had it ultimately, the Pope, the church councils, or the Word of God. This came from people saying, we know better. We know better than God. 
And let me throw something else in the mix here. I was watching a short clip that came up. There's a notification for it on Facebook, a short clip of Ben Shapiro talking through and reacting to an interview where Andrew Tate was talking through this kind of gotcha hit piece attempt by the media after being targeted, it would seem, or at least allegedly, false accusations of running some kind of a human trafficking and prostitution ring conspicuously right after having publicly feuded with Greta Thunberg over climate change and driving big, beautiful, expensive luxury cars, sports cars, hypercars. All of a sudden, Andrew Tate was being investigated for super intense stuff. It was weird, like right away, immediately. But you've got Andrew Tate having, in recent months, announced that he was converting to Islam. And his stated reason was because the Christians don't stick up for themselves. I don't even believe that they really believe in this God they claim to worship because they don't fight for themselves. They just get run roughshod over. They have no respect for themselves. They have no respect for God. And the Muslims do. You know, whether or not the Muslims should be fighting like they are, they're willing to fight at least. And there's a whole lot, there's a whole lot that we need to qualify in that. I'd love to do a whole episode about Andrew Tate at some point here. There's a whole lot that we have to qualify there because we shouldn't be looking to the Muslims for an example. But that's just it, right? That's just it. If we are not at all thinking about evangelistic outreach to Muslims, a growing Muslim population in the U.S. and in Europe, if we're not at all thinking about that, then in that case, this question of polygamy can continue on seeming entirely fringe and irrelevant. But, but what happens, just picture this with me if you will, what happens if you're trying to talk with a Muslim man about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you're trying to invite him to your church this coming Sunday or your biblical training group this coming Friday night? You're trying to invite his kids to youth group on a Wednesday night. You're trying to invite this Muslim man in your community and he asks you, so what do you think about polygamy? Yeah, yeah, you know, a man having multiple wives. What do you think about that? If the Christian response betrays an absolute disregard for what God's word actually says in favor of the traditions of men, and we see the traditions of men crumbling and dissolving all around us, and we actually don't even have a firm grasp of what the word says about this. Do you think the Andrew Tate type when you're trying to share the gospel with him is going to have any patience, any respect for you as a Christian at all? Do you think, let me put this in different terms. Do you think that that Muslim, like an Andrew Tate, is going to have the kind of respect for you that H.L. Mencken had for J. Gresham Mencken? I don't. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, if you have studied diligently You have studied to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And you say, you know, there's a lot of people who disagree with me on this, but the word clearly says this and this and this and this, and it clearly doesn't say these other things. And if the following question is, well, what happened, right? What's the history here? And you can say, well, this is what happened. It had a lot to do with the Romans and trying to win in Rome, do what the Romans do sort of a thing. And you Muslims... Right? You Muslims know something about that. When you move to the West, you try to 
to some extent where you can without violating what you believe you're supposed to be doing and saying, to some extent you start adopting Western fashions. You might drive a Western car, for instance. You might drive to a Western movie theater and watch a movie. You might drive to a Western restaurant and get a Big Mac, right? When in Rome, do as the Romans do to the extent that you can, right? If you're able to explain that to them, and then their next question is, well, hey, I have three wives and 18 children. What happens if I join your church? What happens to my family? What happens to me? If they ask you that, what do you tell them? And does that play a major, major part, a major role in whether you even get off the ground in telling them about Jesus? We have to think about this. We have to. We have to think about it now because the population is going to be majority Muslim in Europe in years and decades, not some hypothetical, fictional, centuries from now, alternative reality. The birth rate among Muslims is why the elites in Europe said, yeah, let's just import cheap labor, migrants from North Africa, the Middle East, Pakistan. Let's do that because these Muslims have children and our people aren't, partly because we're consumed with self-loathing. The post-war consensus is to hate yourself. (laughs) But the Christians, my brothers, my sisters, we have to know what when in Rome do as the Romans do might look like if all of a sudden we're living in a majority Muslim country. We've got to figure that out now. And if, let's suppose, it were not preferable that we would live in a majority Muslim country because it doesn't typically occur to majority Muslim countries to be especially kind and gracious and tolerant towards the Christians in their midst, especially if they're proselytizing. Maybe we should figure it out now and reach out to these Muslims and tell them about Jesus. But we should also figure out what are we going to answer, right? What will we answer when they want to know about the Old Testament patriarchs and the kings and what our laws look like right now on the books as informed by a rather egalitarian, rather Roman outlook on marriage and gender and sex and the family. We've got to figure that out now. In closing, in closing, I threw a lot at you between Numbers 31 and all this business about gun control and swords and arms and the Donatists and Karl Barth and polygamy. I threw a lot at you, but I did so, one, because we can have the mind of Christ about this. And that should be our first question. That should be the most important question to us. We can have the mind of Christ about these things. What does that look like? For another thing, I present all of this to you because trouble is on the way if we don't think more deeply, more intentionally, more holistically about the Bible and about what God has said and what he hasn't said, what he has commanded and what he hasn't commanded, what he's prohibited and what he hasn't prohibited. If we don't think more broadly about these things, we are going to find ourselves less credible, less joyful, less at peace, more in conflict among ourselves, among one another. We don't 
want to be caught flat-footed. And so I am giving you these things to think about. You don't have to agree with all my conclusions, all my assessments, all my commentary. You don't have to agree with all this, but you should be thinking about these things and you should be thinking deeply and reading widely and you should be very intentional. Uh, Also too, just to be very, very clear, Numbers 31 and all that business about war, I'm not saying that there's a one-to-one ratio on everything that's described in the Bible. The same also goes for the legacy of Karl Barth, the question of polygamy. I'm not saying everything that's described is being prescribed. Clearly, clearly not. But neither can you make an argument from silence and then say, ah, it's being described and I'm going to inject into the text what I bring with me from the common sensibilities of my day and age or what is traditional. Take care that we are putting things in the right categories. We know where these ideas come from and we're not just making stuff up or going on inconsiderately. If we have a better idea of what God has said and what he hasn't said, at minimum, we will be more effective in our church fellowship, and in training up our children in the faith. We will have better marriages because I firmly believe God wants us to honor him in marriage, in the home, in our rearing of children, in our fellowship as fellow believers. I firmly believe he wants us to know what he has given to us in his word. But all of it, all of it, can be twisted. Satan can twist any of this for a bad end to throw us off course, to make us unproductive, to make us unfruitful, to make us miserable. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and we want to have the mind of Christ and to put on the whole armor of God. We need to know we are in a battle. We're in a spiritual war. We also need to know that doesn't mean you just act rough and mean and insecure. In fact, all the more rather than less, you should know how to pick your battles. If the text doesn't support what you're claiming, study on the front end. Develop fingerspitzengeffel, that fingertip feeling, to where you know very quickly when new information comes in, when a new question, a new situation is presented, you know very, very quickly what is true, what is good, what is the will of God, perfect, holy, pleasing, acceptable, for you to do, for you to say. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. It's a busy day ahead this Tuesday. Lots to think about. Check out the links I'll put in the description for this podcast episode. As always too, please, please, please consider who you know who would find this podcast interesting. Send them a link. Send them an episode that you think would catch them in a pensive mood and help them to think through it help them to think rightly about these things and take these thoughts captive. I don't want to do all the thinking for us. We all need to cultivate a knowledgeability and an insightfulness and intentionality. We all need that. Don't just trust that the experts are going to do it for you. No, no, no. You need, you need to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But also please hit subscribe. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever platform is your preferred follow, and we will have more such content in the future. At a certain point, we'll do one on Andrew Tate, rest assured. But like I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. 
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.